Hey there, welcome back to Laws of the Game, a soccer law podcast. I'm Kate Porter, and again, here with my co-host, Andrew Wisnowski. We wanted today to talk about international eligibility. What that means, essentially, what we're going to talk about is how FIFA determines which country a player uh, is able to represent in international competitions like the World Cup, and, and how players can effectively switch their nationalities and what it means to be cap-tied to a specific national team. So jumping right into FIFA's rules and regulations on who is eligible to represent a country in international competitions, Article 5 of FIFA's regulations governing the application of the statutes, I think it it's we can shorten it to... I'm not going to try that. Um, yeah, it's Rigas, I think is how they do it. I'm not going to try. We'll just say the regulations for now. That makes the most sense. Basically sets forth FIFA's rules concerning eligibility for national teams. In principle, any person holding a permanent nationality that is not dependent on residence in a certain country is eligible to play for representative teams of the association of that country. Straightforward, right? Totally easy. Super, super <laughs> duper. So, so what that means is FIFA distinguishes between holding a nationality and being eligible to obtain nationality. So let's say I'm a U.S. citizen and I have a grandparent. My grandmother was born in Mexico. And let's say for some, for some odd reason, I'm able to obtain Mexican citizenship. I couldn't today play for the Mexican national team because I don't yet have... Mexican nationality. So that that's kind of the distinction that um, FIFA is drawing here. So the individuals who hold nationality, so either they automatically acquired nationality through birth or acquired nationality through a country's nationalization process, they're generally eligible to represent that country's national team subject to some exceptions that we'll get into. But again, as I mentioned, if an individual is eligible to obtain nationality but doesn't hasn't yet acquired that nationality, then he or she cannot represent that national team of that country. And this is this is sort of where the intersection of FIFA rules and, and national law and nationality law sort of come into play. And, and FIFA has sort of said, we defer to individual nations and how they establish their nationality laws to determine that we're not going to step in and, and say how that works. So for example, if a, if a child is born out of wedlock abroad to a U.S. citizen father, under U.S. law, the child doesn't have an automatic U.S. citizenship, but nevertheless may acquire citizenship by demonstrating a blood relationship between the child and the father, that the father was a U.S. citizen at the time of the child's birth, the father has agreed in writing to provide support to the child until he or she reaches 18, and while the child is under 18, the father's paternity is established either through acknowledgement by the father or or some sort of legal proceeding. That's all U.S. law. That has nothing to do with FIFA. That's just how U.S. sets it up in this circumstance. So if the child has not yet gone through that process to acquire the U.S. citizenship, even if he or she can establish that they satisfy that test, they're not eligible to represent a U.S. national team until they actually satisfy the test and acquire that nationality. I think the the other thing that is weird that for Americans versus other places in the world is that we're talking about nationality and not citizenship. In the U.S., for most people, nationality and citizenship are tied together into one thing, except for American Samoans. Super complicated and we won't get into it. But it's important to make that distinction because in a lot of countries, you can be a national without being a citizen. And the test is for that nationality status, not the citizenship status. But for the U.S., it's 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 more or less one and the same. 
Yep. And, you know, we'll talk about later the the other FIFA requirements. So so there may be other be, other FIFA requirements, particularly where a player acquires a new nationality that, that goes beyond just holding the nationality, whether or not someone's eligible to represent a new national association. And this was this was kind of uh, these regulations were adopted as FIFA's way to combat countries reaching out to really talented players and saying, hey, you know, we'll give you citizenship or nationality if you come play for a national team. So FIFA has additional requirements, particularly where you're switching nationality. And we'll get to those later on in this episode. And one of the things that Andrew talked about was was foreign-born players who are born, who are fathers are U.S. citizens. And so for the U.S. national team, the children of U.S. citizen fathers has played actually a really important role in the development of soccer as a nation. So let's go back to the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. The United States had a German coach at the time, Jürgen Klinsmann. And so... Klinsmann is a famous German national team player, and he used his relationship and his ties to, to Germany to actually recruit a number of really solid players to come switch nationalities and come play for the United States. So for the 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil, the U.S. fielded five players who were either born or raised in Germany to at least one U.S. citizen parent. And, and interestingly enough, many of these these players, their parents were U.S. servicemen or women who were stationed in Germany in the 1980s and 1990s. And if you're familiar with with political and, and U.S. foreign policy, the U.S. has a very important military base in Germany. And so there were several players who's, who had servicemen fathers or servicewomen fathers who were otherwise born, born and raised in Germany and then became eligible to play for the United States. And the U.S. national team was able to, U.S. Soccer Federation was able to recruit these players. So it was... It was um, pretty solid the the recruiting that we were able to do and half our team in the 2014 world cup spoke german as a first language so it's interesting yeah and you see that with with a lot of teams and players you see it with the current moroccan team it has a bunch of players that were born abroad to parents from from morocco you see it with a bunch of the current american players gio reyna is eligible for like six national teams because of his parents, his parents' nationality and the fact that he was born in the UK. Yunus Musa, I think, is eligible for like three or four because of where he was born and where he lived. But it's just a fact. It's it's a fact for a lot of these players that they can do this. And a lot of teams are capitalizing on this because it helps them expand their player pool for competitive purposes. And it it, it helps if you have a coach who is from a country where there are a lot of American service people mixing with the with the local German population. It, it creates a really significant source of, of players and talent for sure. So another thing that we should touch on is that in in FIFA, we talked about this a little bit in our previous episodes about talking about like what a national association is and and FIFA's membership, but there are a number of national associations that are within a country you can talk about like England, you can talk about those home nations, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. And you can also, there's there's a couple others in the US. There, there's Puerto Rico and Guam and the US Virgin Islands. And a, couple, a lot of the territories of the US also have their own national association. So what happens if a player has one nationality, but there are multiple associations involved in that territory. Article six of the regulation says that if a player is eligible to represent multiple associations through one nationality, then he or she may, may represent one of them if and o only if, in addition to his or her citizenship, he or she was born in the territory of that national association's country. 
his or his biological mother or biological father was born in that territory, his or her grandmother or grandfather was born in that territory, or he or she has lived in that territory of that country's national association for at least five years. You know, this provision is often invoked where a player is born in an area where technically he or she could represent two national associations. So in the United States, for example, let's take a look at Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has its own national association, but there also is the United States Association. So a player born in Puerto Rico is eligible to represent not only Puerto Rico, but also the U.S. national team. And so he or she would then qualify and, and, and would have to choose. I guess the, the reverse is not really true. A player born in Texas, so in the United States, but who otherwise doesn't have any ties to, to Puerto Rico, so no mothers, grandmothers, hasn't lived in Puerto Rico, he or she is likely not eligible to represent the Puerto Rican National Association, even though Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. Right. And then you can, if you really want to get into the hard mode on this, you if you have a player with Northern Irish nationality, he is entitled to an Irish passport because he was born, if he was born on the Irish island of Ireland, he has a British passport. So he's eligible for Northern Ireland as well. So we have those two separate nationalities. And then if he moves to England and lives there for five years, he can play for England as well. And if he has a Scottish grandparent and a Welsh grandparent, he can play for Scotland and Wales as well. So that that is to say there's there's lots of there's lots of ways to play for lots of different nationalities depending on where you're at. But I it's it's hard to it's hard it's hard to parse and it's 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 tough for those players that have those like dual FIFA nationalities but but singular singular nationalities with their country to choose between their cultural ties or the team that they grew up hoping to represent but but and then also considering the team that they would most likely represent to to play at an international level and and balancing all those decisions i don't envy players in that situation so also in addition to like having multiple nationalities people can obviously acquire a new nationality so let's say a player that was born in one country played for the youth teams in another country and now wants to represent a different country of which they are a national or a citizen. FIFA provides for a process to acquire that new nationality, but it's it's complicated. In the first instance, subject to certain exceptions, players may not have represented their former association in a match in official competition of any category or any type of football for his association. That that basically means that you can't do the switch if you have played for the other country's national team. If if you have acquired that new nationality, you also have to be to play for that new team. You have to be born in the in the territory of the new association or your biological mother or father or grandparents were born in the territory of the new association, or you have lived in the territory of that new association based on the following factors. For players who began living in the country before the age of 10, it's three years. For players who began living in the country between the ages of 10 and 18, it's at least five years. And for players who began living in the country after the age of 18, it's at least five years. Kate, is that correct? For yeah, after exactly. the age of 18? Yeah, okay. it's, it's the same. So this, this is, again, those additional requirements on top of just holding nationality that I mentioned earlier. You know, FIFA has imposed additional requirements that kind of 
makes ensures that a, that a player actually has some sort of relationship to the country that he or she is going to represent. You don't want places on national teams going to basically the highest bidder. And so that this is this is FIFA's way of combating that is to ensure that at least there's some sort of not only do you hold the nationality, but there's some sort of tie tying you either through blood or your time living in a country to that country that you're going to represent. This provision is was the crux of a, one of my favorite caste disputes with the UAE Football Association versus the Asian Football Confederation, the Qatar Football Association. And this case arose out of the 2019 AFC Asian Cup, which is hosted by the UAE. And I believe I touched on this dispute in a previous episode, but I think it's, it's helpful to rehash as well. So at the time of the tournament, the UAE and other Gulf nations had severed diplomatic relations and imposed an economic blockade against Qatar. So political tensions were very high between the two countries. UAE was hosting the tournament. And the UAE actually passed laws criminalizing support for Qatar, and Qatari fans were not permitted to travel to the country to attend the tournament. So the, the Qatari national team was really facing an uphill battle here. And in this in the semifinals, Qatar played the UAE. And so again, you're against the backdrop of really tense political tensions between the countries. The atmosphere, the, the match was quite hostile. During the match, the UAE fans were throwing shoes at players and onto the pitch, which is you know, a grave insult in, in many Arab cultures. But eventually... Qatar won the match for nothing. And so after the match, the UAE filed an official match protest claiming that Qatar had fielded two ineligible players. So Bassam al-Rawi, who was born in Iraq, and al-Mawaz Ali, who was born in Sudan. The AFC, in the first instance, had to to hear this dispute rather quickly because it needed to determine whether or not Qatar could compete in the final and rejected the the protest. Qatar went on to play in the final and beat Japan and became champion of the AFC Asian Cup, which is probably one of the most historic victories in Qatar's sporting history. So it was really important for Qatar that they hold on to their, their title. UAE appealed to the AFC Appeals Committee, who again dismissed the protest and so eventually gets up to the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne, Switzerland. And we will spend an episode later on in this series talking about the Court of Arbitration for Sport, how it gets disputes, who hears these disputes, who are the arbitrators. But for now, all you really need to know is that CAS hears, so the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or CAS, as you may hear it, or if you listen to Spanish language news, you'll often hear it reported, referred to as TAS, which is just the Spanish or the or the French way of referring to it, but the um, it hears appeals from certain decisions from FIFA and the confederations. So it hears this appeal. In the appeal, the UAE claimed that neither Al-Rawi nor Ali were eligible to represent Qatar because their mothers weren't actually born in Qatar. They were born in Iraq and Sudan, respectively. The UAE eventually withdrew its protest as to Al-Rawi because his he hadn't actually participated in the match against the UAE, so there was no standing to challenge his eligibility. The crux of the case focused on Al-Mawaz Ali. The UAE presented documents that suggested that Mr. Ali's mother was actually born in Sudan, and there was Sudanese documents that, that stated as much. But then Qatar was able to turn around and present other documents, including a corrected Sudanese nationality documents that indicated that his mother was, in fact, born in Qatar. And so eventually there was a panel of three arbitrators, cast arbitrators, who sided with the QFA and concluded that it was comfortably satisfied that Mr. Ali's mother was born in Qatar based on official government records presented. And so Qatar's victory, the 2019 AFC Asian Cup was upheld. And, and one of my the most memorable parts of this case was it was the last in-person hearing at CAS's headquarters before the world shut down for the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I, I recall getting up from, as soon as the hearing was over and basically sprinting to the hotel to get our bags and going straight to the airport and hoping that we could get back to the U.S. before the borders got were closed. So it was uh, it was it was quite interesting. Did you make it back in time? We did. 
but it was also because we still had an extra 24 hours because the announcement about closing borders was imprecise as to the timing of when it would be implemented. Nice. <laughs> Very good. Great job. Happy for you. Glad, glad you're back. So there are some instances where a player can switch an association, even when he or she has previously participated in, in matches for another national association. This this is is fairly common. A big example of that is a Brazilian-born Diego Costa, who, re- who represented Spain at the international level. Nearly half of the players for the Morocco team, as I said before, are, are who are set to take on France in the semifinal of the FIFA World Cup were born outside of Morocco. Hakim Ziyech plays for Chelsea, has both Dutch and Moroccan nationality, and previously represented the Netherlands at, at the youth level. Amin Harit of Olympic Marseille previously represented France at the youth level. So let's talk about the process of, of doing this quote-unquote one-time switch. Basically, a player will submit a one-time request to FIFA to change the association where he, when when they meet a certain set of criteria. In practice, the, the federation will sub- make the submission on behalf of the player. So while a lot of the documents say the player shall submit this thing, it's, it's, it's in most cases the, the federation to which the player is switching will make the, the filing on behalf of the player. So the criteria that's available is usually that the player has participated in an official match for his first national association other than at the senior A-level international competition. So like a player who plays in a World Cup match for a country can no longer change their association, but a player that plays at the youth level is able to. At the time of the match in question that they played for that national team, they were already a national of the association to which they want to switch. Right. So so let's take an example. Let's say a player is born to, I don't know, a German mother and an American father. And without knowing anything about, about German nationality law, let's let's presume that you don't there's no there's no automatic citizenship if you're born to a German mother, let's say. I, I have a feeling that may not be the case, but let let's go for it. Let's go for it in this hypothetical. Let's assume. So let's so this player is a US citizen, but and born in the United States, but through grandparents, grandparents, whatever, has the right to acquire German nationality and, and does later on in life. So let's say he's 12 or 13 when he or she acquires German nationality. If the player had represented the U.S. at the youth level, he or she, assuming other certain conditions are made, he or she may submit a request to change associations and represent Germany down the road if, if he meets all, he or she meets all this criteria, which we'll, we'll go into. Another exception in in this uh, world of exceptions is if a player has previously represented one national association in one official match other than at the A international level, but at the time of that match, he or she was not a citizen of the second nation. The player is still eligible at that point of the switch if at the time of the match of the first association, he was not yet 21 years old and meets the above criteria that we spoke about under Article 6 and 7 of the regulations. That is, either he or she was born in the territory of the new association, or his biological parents or grandparents were born in that territory, or he or she has lived in the territory of the new association for for at least five years. And then there is a third. So in a third scenario, let's say the player did compete in an A or national competition for the first association, 
But at the time, he already held the nationality of the Second Association. If he had not yet turned 21 at the time of that A international match and was fielded in no more than three A international matches, at least, and at least three years had passed since he had featured in that A international match for the prior association and has never represented the first association in a final tournament of the FIFA World Cup or a final confederation competition, that being like the Euros or the Gold Cup or the AFC Asia Cup, then they are able to make that one-time switch. It gets confusing because there's like different tiers of A international matches. So essentially, you're allowed no more than three total A international matches. So that's that's basically three friendlies and one of which can be an official match as long as it is not in the World Cup or a confederation, a final of a confederation competition. Right. That's a lot to consider. But um, here's an example. All right. Let's say Paxton Aronson. And Paxton Aronson, for those who don't know, is Brennan Aronson's little brother. Brennan Aronson plays for the U.S. men's national team. Paxton Aronson, Aronson recently moved overseas and is playing in Europe now. And the expectation is at some point soon he will join the U.S. men's national team. All right, we have Paxton Aronson, um, and let's say he becomes a German citizen tomorrow. Now, this this example is a little bit of a stretch, but you know, go with me here. In this example, Paxton Aronson has never represented the United States youth national teams, which is not really the case. He has, but for the sake of this ex- this example, let's say he's never played those matches, and he's never played for the U.S. men's national team, the, the full senior national team, which is true. He is as of today, he hasn't played an official competition for them. He's 19 years old. Now, let's say he gets called up to represent the U.S. at the CONCACAF Nations League this summer, and there he plays in two different matches. And then in November of 2026, when he's 23 years old, he decides he wants to represent Germany instead of the U.S. May he do it? I'll give you the the typical (laughs) lawyer response, which is it depends. But signs say, you know, possibly yes, right? So... In this this hypothetical example, Paxton was under 21 when he represented the U.S. in an A international match. And at the time that he did, he was a German citizen at the time. The match in question was not part of a final tournament of a confederation competition, which is defined by FIFA as being the final tournament of the CONCACAF Gold Club. And at least three years has passed since he represented the U.S. So he could make a one-time switch and switch nationalities and begin to represent Germany. And what you do see is as players are considering where they want to, to have their long time, their, their permanent, I guess, FIFA eligibility with which associations, a lot of times associations will call up players for matches and particularly friendly matches and, and, and players will turn down those call ups if they're still considering whether or not they want to make the switch so they don't, they don't preclude their options. So I have a fourth scenario for you and this is a fourth of the five. So a player participates in an official match for a national association. And so after participating in that match, FIFA FIFA admits a new member association, and the player now wants to play for that new member association. So that member association wasn't a, a, a member of FIFA at the time that he represent he played in the official match for the original association, and the player has not represented the original national association since the new na- national association became a FIFA member. And at the time that he played in the match, he was either already a citizen of the new member association or, or became a citizen as soon as reasonably practicable after the country was recognized by a majority of the members in the UN. So here, this is a, a prime example of, of international law coming into play, particularly where new countries become recognized by the United Nations and, and what happens if a player of a newly recognized country or who was, is a citizen 
now the newly recognized country, if he's previously represented another country, you know how to how to handle that. So an example of this scenario is if a player is born in Sudan and in, in what is now South Sudan, if she, he or she represented Sudan before May 2012, when South Sudan became a FIFA member, but has not done so since May 2012, he or she may nevertheless represent South Sudan through the one-time switch process. This makes sense, obviously, to bring in new, bring in players to these new countries and these new associations as they come around. So in a file scenario, if a player represents their original national association in an A-level international match, but is stripped of his or her nationality due to a decision by a governmental authority, and he or she holds the nationality of a new association, he or she may also make a one-time switch in that event. So you might sometimes hear about players being cap-tied, which the term actually refers to caps or the number of appearances that a player has made. Yeah, and that, that term cap, it goes back to the English Football Association and their practice of, of giving players an actual cap or a hat for each time they they represent the country in an international match. So I think I, w- I saw an interview with uh, Marcus Rashford and they was doing like a, a come come see my home and he had a actual like bookcase of just all of his caps and they're like physical caps. They'll say like the, da- the name of the match, or the day the match and who they're playing. So That's crazy. They're like these little, tiny little hats too. They're like old timey hats. I don't think the U.S. Soccer Federation does that, but I could be wrong. (laughs) So if a player is cap tied, it it basically just means they're no longer eligible to switch national associations and and is quote unquote tied to one association for the remainder of their playing career. So they can only get caps from from one country. Right. So, you know, this was like a year and a half ago. This was a big concern with some of the young players on the U.S. men's national team, like Yunus Musa, for example. So he'd previously represented England before committing to the U.S. And he had only appeared in a a couple of friendly matches for the U.S. So there was a real concern and he's and he's young. So there was a real concern that he might at some point decide to switch back to England, represent England, particularly when England manager Gareth Southgate started making comments in the press of like, oh, we're, we're monitoring him. We're interested in him. And so there was a concern that he would say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not yet cap tied to the United States. So actually, I, I do want to represent England and I can go back and play for them. And that was, a, I think, a real concern with a lot of people in the U.S. men's national team fan base is, oh, we better we better get this this guy in, in on a whole bunch of matches real quick. Otherwise, we're going to we potentially will lose him. So fortunately for the U.S., Yunus Musa decided to commit his future to the U- United States. And he's now officially cap tied to the U.S., you know, having appeared, particularly having appeared in the 2022 FIFA World Cup, where he had, I think, a very solid tournament. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how players become eligible to represent a national team, but, you know, what happens when a team or a national team fields an ineligible player? If you look at the result under the FIFA disciplinary code, the team will have to forfeit the match and will be fined. The player might also be sanctioned. And there's similar rules that exist at the confederation level. Right. So disputes about the eligibility of national team players arise every so often. We already talked about the dispute between the UAE and and Qatar about the players in the AFC Asia Cup, but a more recent example is the dispute, the recent dispute between Chile and Ecuador. Byron Castillo is a Colombian-born player who represented Ecuador in the qualifying rounds for the World Cup for Common Bowl. Castillo had apparently submitted a fraudulent birth certificate 
that stated he was born in Ecuador rather than in Colombia, where he was actually born. Castillo used this birth certificate to obtain an Ecuadorian passport. In 2018, Castillo admitted to using the fake birth certificate at the Ecuadorian Federation, and the Ecuadorian Federation was aware of this issue. When Ecuador qualified for the World Cup, Chile and Peru lodged a challenge claiming that Castillo was not eligible to represent Ecuador because he was born in Colombia and and requested that Ecuador be forced to forfeit the qualification matches in which Castillo participated. This would have led to, I believe, Chile becoming eligible for the for the World Cup through qualifying because Colombia or because Ecuador would have lost lost points and would have gotten jumped in the qualifying standings. FIFA ultimately rejected those claims, and eventually it was heard by, by the CAS in Lausanne. On November 8, 2022, just weeks before the World Cup kicked off, arbitrators, a bunch of CAS arbitrators, a panel of CAS arbitrators, determined that Castillo was, in fact, born in Colombia, However, even though Castillo had used fraudulent documents at the time he represented Ecuador, he met FIFA's eligibility criteria to represent the Ecuadorian national team. Right. And and actually, I think it was Peru would have gone through because they finished fifth in, in Comabal qualifying. But ultimately, the CAS panel decided to fine the Ecuadorian Federation 100,000 Swiss francs. It's going to dock Ecuador three points from the next cycle of World Cup qualifying for 2026. It required that Chile and, and Peru be financially compensated. But, you know, ultimately it declared that Castillo was actually eligible to represent Ecuador at the 2020 FIFA World Cup. So Ecuador went ahead, participated in the tournament, although it did not advance past the, the group stage. And Castillo, interestingly, was not called by Ecuador for the tournament. The Ecuadorian Federation said, look, we just we know he's eligible and we, we have this decision saying he's eligible. We just want to avoid future issues. So we're just not even going to call him. So he didn't get to participate in the World Cup. Yeah. So that's the end of today's episode of Laws of the Game, a soccer law podcast about international eligibility. I There's a lot to unpack here. There was a lot that we covered. This was so far one of the most complicated podcasts that we've recorded. It's one of the most complicated topics in the football regulatory space, I think, to wrap your head around. Yeah. Exactly. So we appreciate you joining us today. We're looking forward to our next episode where we're going to turn our focus back to domestic soccer in the U.S. And we'll address Major League Soccer and it's some of its rather unique features as compared to both other international soccer leagues and also the other U.S. professional sports leagues. So we uh, hope you join in and thank you again for uh, tuning in today. The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawoodlaw.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawoodlaw.com.